Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre, based in St. Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd, and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Pod. And uh, today it is our good old home team with us here today. So it's myself, Graham Tomlin. We have uh, Jane Williams from Cardiff. We do. And Michael Lloyd in Oxford. Hello. It does sound like University Challenge a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, Except it with this. a croaky voice from you, Mike. You've obviously well, got I, a cold. Yeah. I have, I'm afraid, yes. Which is why Zoom, one of the many advantages of Zoom. But there we go. Yeah, we're not, we're not sharing your germs over Zoom, Mike. Right. Zoom has other problems. There's problems with viruses, but not that one. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah. Well... It's uh, always good to be together, even if um, at a distance. It's made it a little bit easier for us to do this via Zoom. But uh, um, we are today going to do what we often do when we talk together, which is to talk about theology and uh, things that interest us. And um, sometimes we get the chance to answer some questions from others coming in. Sometimes we talk about books that we've been involved in producing. And um, today is one of the latter of those that um, we wanted to talk about a a book that's come out quite recently, one that um, that I edited myself, uh, along with um, Nathan Eddy, uh, called The Bond of Peace, Exploring Generous Orthodoxy. And uh, Jane was one of the contributors. She's contributed a very fine essay. Very fine. Thank you, Graham. It's very, very good. And um, so uh, this, is, this is a book that's um, published by SBCK. I have no idea how much it costs because my version, the version I've got here, doesn't tell me. Um, You've so got a free copy, presumably. <laughs> I think there's one or two free copies. So if you're interested, you may have to go on to SPCK website or Amazon or something like that and find a copy. But it's basically a series of essays uh, by a number of people um, on this theme of generous orthodoxy. So that's what the book is about. Now, Mike, I'm aware you have not seen this book. You've uh, not read it. Um, you've read one or two other books in your time. Um <laughs> But you did help. I mean, obviously, you were one of the founder members of St. Melitus College, which is um, one of the many places in the Christian world which is which is trying to explore this concept of um, how we can um, live with differences in a in a generous and orthodox kind of way. You you helped found that concept so you're deeply embedded in it, as as Graham and I are too. Well, and St. Melitus was itself. The joining together of two two different theological institutions from different theological traditions, really. Mm-hmm. So it was that essentially from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of what I've been doing at Wycliffe is to try and kind of foster that kind of gen- gen- generous um, attitude towards different theological traditions and positions. So absolutely. But tell me, tell me a little bit, Graham, about how the book came about what was the kind of what was the inspiration for the book or the the trigger or spark for it well it started really because i mean as 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 you both know the three of us were involved in the very early days at st melitus and one of the uh things we wanted to do from the beginning of the college's founding was to bring together the 
mainstream traditions of the church in a way that was constructive rather than um, mutually antagonistic, uh, uh, and but also wasn't just the kind of lowest common denominator of the, 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 the very few things we can agree on. It was an attempt to try to bring together the mainstream traditions of the church in a way that each one felt valued and expressed and students from different backgrounds could feel that their tradition was honoured in that place. Anyway, we, we adopted the, the phrase, uh, as you will remember, generous orthodoxy early on um, to try and describe that uh, attempt to hold together the different traditions of the, uh, of the church. And it was a phrase that actually goes back to um, the work of Hans Frey, who's a, uh, an American theologian at, um, in Yale Divinity School back in the 1980s, I think it was. And uh, he used the phrase in an article that he wrote, and it's been picked up by a number of other authors. And there was a book by Brian McLaren on the same uh, same theme. Other people have picked it up as well. And I guess since we picked it up as a as a phrase at some like it's got used quite a bit around the church, and we've I've seen it being used in a number of places. And I suppose when a phrase gets used a lot, it can end up meaning not very much, um, or it can mean kind of anything anyone wants to wants it to mean. And so. Um, I guess as time went on, I began to think, well, what actually do we mean by this phrase, generous orthodoxy? What's, what, what actually, what content does it hold? And so um, I had the idea of uh, having a bit of a research project on generous orthodoxy. So um, we got some, some uh, from generous funding from um, the McDonald Agape Foundation in uh, the United States, uh, who funded a research project which involved both a series of lectures where we invited, we could invite anybody we wanted to around the world to come and lecture on some aspect of generous orthodoxy. And we had a number of figures from around the um, theological world to come and do that. And um, we had a 24 hour colloquium, a conversation with other theologians that we brought together. Uh, we had some conversations amongst the Samalitis staff. And uh, the, the two main products of this process was to be a, a book of essays around the, the, the theme of generous orthodoxy, which comprised the, um, the, the lectures that were given by the visiting speakers and a number of essays by something like the staff, past and present. Uh, and also on the other side, there was going to be a book which I was going to write myself, which I'm just writing right now. Uh, hopefully it will come out in sort of Easter of 2022. I thought I heard the keyboard clattering as we spoke. <laughs> that's right yeah right yeah yeah using my spare time you know um and so that's really where it came from and so the book is a is a collection of essays of those lectures that were given and a number of uh, contributions by some like the staff including jane herself and i mean the word orthodoxy tends to be used outside of the church as a kind of negative thing it's, it's a way of thinking that's become a bit fossilized and which creative thinkers challenge and get out of the grip of uh, and shake off the shackles of. Um, Jane, you, I, I see that you wrote a, a thing on creeds, which I think people have a similar view of creeds. Um, how, how, what do we mean by orthodoxy and how does it escape being a fossilized thing? That is exactly what I wanted to explore really in, in the essay. Um, is is orthodoxy um, primarily interested in the people in who you're keeping out, or is there a way in which orthodoxy enables a real flourishing of those um, who are able to cluster around something like um, the creed, for example? And and um, uh, and uh, so I was wanting to explore: is there something about? Um, it, that I want. I think I was wanting to argue that the creed is really about the character of God. 
um, and uh, orthodox, and that's what orthodoxy is about. It's about exploring uh, what God is actually like, and therefore what being people who belong to this God um, uh, enables us to do and be, and uh, and how we therefore live in the world. Um, and I, I, um, I just found that really quite a, an interesting and creative way in. If it's not, um, if orthodoxy isn't primarily about um, rules, but about how we lead a flourishing life that speaks of the God we believe in, um, that does begin to uh, sort of reshape our understanding of orthodoxy. Because you're you're absolutely right. I mean, we get asked constantly. Um, people tend to assume that the word generous is um, undermines orthodoxy, that you can't be both uh, orthodox and generous. So which of people sort of ask us, which of those do you really mean? <laughs> and I find that incredibly sad that it's assumed that, that orthodoxy is ungenerous if what it's talking about is, is the proper worship and, and belief in uh, God, the creator uh, and redeemer of, of, of the world. But if creeds and therefore orthodoxy are about the character of God, then, then that implies that there are ways of speaking rightly and ways of not speaking rightly about the character of God, which must be the case if there's any substance to the character of God. Absolutely, which is why um, uh, orthodoxy does have to say there are some things, as creeds do, there are some things... Um, that can't be true. Uh, they're incompatible with each other to to say a number of different things. So uh, I, I'm and I'm not a. I don't want to be apologetic about that. If God is real, um, then then which you know actually I believe God is real. Um, then that's the, <laughs> that's the orthodoxy. Bit. Um, then it's no good pretending that God isn't like that. God could be anything. Um, this is the God who has revealed God's self in Jesus Christ and continues to do so in the in the presence and action of the Holy Spirit, um, and is uh, is not therefore like anything else that we might want to make up. So there are boundaries, but I, the question is whether the boundaries are primarily interested in who you keep out, or primarily interested in what you do um, and what they enable within. And I think that's what I was exploring. And, sure. and, and therefore, sorry, Graham. Title of James chapter, which is very good, I must say, sparing James Blosses, is um is Creeds, Boundaries or Paths? Question mark. It's a very interesting title because in some ways that they're, they're both. I mean, creeds give boundaries, but they also give a path. In some ways, people focus on the boundaries, but they don't necessarily focus on on the path. And um I often think about the word orthodoxy, and obviously there's two words there, orthos, which is right, and doxa, which is which is glory. And we we think if you think of that word orthos, that Greek word, you know, we, we have um, we use that in other uh, spheres as well. So you know, you when you you have we have um, orthodontists who are dentists who are particularly focused on aligning or straightening people's teeth or jaws. And we've got orthopedic surgeons whose you know whose job it is to you know get your muscles and your bones and your joints working well together. And so, in other words, you know that those things are about getting things in the right order so they're working well and it seems to me that you know if, if that's true of, of our you know our bodies and our teeth and our jaws and whatever orthodoxy is about getting our worship right getting our view of god right so that we see god clearly and so that we're able to live well within this world 
So there's a sort of, um, there's a very practical element, it seems to me, to orthodoxy, which is not just about getting your thinking right, ticking a few boxes, um, so that I can pass the heavenly exam at the, uh, that St. Peter will give me at the, um, the gates of heaven, uh, but so that I can live well within the world that God has given us. So it's almost, orthodoxy is actually about so speaking of God that one does not block or obscure his glory. I think that's right. It's, I've often thought about the way in which, say, patristic authors, for example, if you think of the, you know, the, the debates that happened around the Creed of Nicaea, both before it and afterwards, they were very fine-tuned discussions of you know, what preposition you should use when you talk about how you worship the Holy Spirit. Do you, do you worship in the Spirit or with the Spirit, or should the Spirit be worshipped alongside or with or the Father and the Son and so on? And you think, well, you know, who cares? But the reason why they were so interested in it is because it's a little bit like, you know, looking at a, looking at a, taking a picture through a, a, a zoom lens and you, you finally calibrate the lens and to get it so that you can see the picture exactly as clearly as you can. And then you get the full glory of what you're looking at. And so it seems to me that's why there's such precision in the patristic writers and theologians thinking about, about God and what goes into the creeds and why such sort of angst goes into every single word. I mean, it's what Nicene Creed is 175 words in Greek, every one of which is chosen very carefully, so that you can get your picture of God as clearly as you possibly can, so you can see how good and beautiful and rich this picture of God is. On the other hand, it has to be said that a lot of them, though they were keen to get the picture right, did not necessarily treat people they disagreed with with enormous generosity. Um, so they were either anathematizing each other or exiling each other or uh, rejoicing in the difficult ways in which they, their opponents died. Um, is that where? Yeah. And obviously that's, that's uh, I hope, not what we want to do nowadays. But on the other hand, I do sometimes, um, I, I slightly admire that kind of passion um, and the sort of um, feeling that uh, it doesn't really matter what we say about God because um, um, what really matters is what I think and how I want to live. Um, I, I, that, that sort of diminishes um, the, the force of, of, of what this orthodoxy is trying to say, that um, if it, God is the one who shapes the whole of reality and therefore for us to flourish within that reality um, we actually need to pay attention to God and to each other. Um, now, as you say, that is, is not at all the, the language that many of the early fathers uh, used about their opponents. Um, but they did care about God. They did. They did. But perhaps that's where orthopraxy is important as well. Absolutely. Uh, you know, somebody may be your theological enemy, but one is supposed to love one's enemies. And uh, I guess part of the, the spirit behind this book is to try and reintroduce that into, into the dynamic between the dynamic of disagreement, perhaps. Yes, I think one of the images I, I'm playing with in the book that I'm writing at the moment on generous orthodoxy is, is of, a, of an island. If you think of a large island, um, that has lots of space on it and has lots of sort of beautiful grass and valleys and flowers, but actually has some pretty stiff, steep cliffs around it at the same time. Um, 
And then the idea of orthodoxy is a kind of map for the island that shows you what's interesting, what's important, that leads you through the island to the best things that are on it. But that also marks out the paths that you don't want to go down too far because it could lead you to fall over the edge of the cliff. And it seems to me that that's kind of what heresies are. Heresies are pathways, they're ways of thinking and believing that if you carry on following them too far, will actually lead you to some fairly dark and destructive places. That's why I think the the early fathers got so heated up about heresy and were quite sort of, and yeah, you're right, you know, did overstep the mark on a lot of occasions uh, in calling each other heretics because they were so afraid of those places. But you can sort of imagine if with giving that image, if you see someone heading towards a cliff, you shout pretty hard, you know, don't go down that way. Um, but I think it does lead us to the to the to the to the, um, the other question, which I think this 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 book looks at, which is yes, orthodoxy can be seen as a um, you know there, there is the sort of Christian orthodoxy side of things, but also it's it's talking about the the generosity with which orthodoxy has to be held, and actually generosity is the right way to hold orthodoxy, um, rather than a kind of you know hunting out heresies wherever you possibly can find them, as it were, and drawing the circle of orthodoxy so tightly and so narrowly that no one else is orthodox apart from me and possibly you on a good day, you know. Um, and that that generosity is because of the nature of God, isn't it? A tempering of, of what we believe about God on, for the sake of some liberal value. This is tempering what we say about God because of who God is. Exactly. So the creed says, God is the maker of all there is. What an extraordinarily generous hmm. um, God who doesn't need the world, but makes it in order to include us in... Um, the the glorious circle of the love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, that's the that's the God whom we profess um, to worship. If, uh, so we need to be attempting uh, to practice um, some kind of generosity towards each other. So, similarly, the Holy Spirit is the giver of life, and therefore, if the Spirit is the giver of life, then there is something in all life of God's generosity to be seen. Um, now we temper that, of course, especially in the presence of Mike, with the fallenness of the world and the reality of sin in the world. But there's still underneath it something about the, the, the generosity of God in creation and salvation that the creed talks about that means that sort of generosity is the right way to hold orthodoxy. And therefore, there is a kind of integral link between them. But orthodoxy in is, it, is itself generous, uh, but it also needs to be held in a generous way. Um, generous but not limitless, not without its limits and its boundaries and its its um, uh, its definition. And I think one of the things about one of the key figures in the Council of Nicaea was, of course, Athanasius, um, who and, and, and not just in the Council of Nicaea but in the definition of, of orthodoxy in all sorts of ways. Uh, and he was very very clear on the importance of the divinity of Christ and being a boundary or a cliff edge. But he was very careful also that, to check that we weren't disputing about different ways of saying similar or compatible things. He was very careful to work out what people meant by things, but rather than jumping to the conclusion that they were saying something different or, or indeed heretical. And I think that's, that's a really important um, 
habit to get into. When you see something that you find arresting and you disagree with, check what they're actually saying before too quickly uh, responding negatively to it. I remember we were talking in a previous Godblood about John Stott and when David Jenkins, the Bishop of Durham, was saying things that sounded, and in fact may indeed have been, um, theologically questionable, um, he, he asked to go and have a conversation with him first and went up to Durham to, to talk with him before he said anything publicly. That's part of the kind of generosity that you're talking about, isn't it? That allow for the possibility that what you think somebody is saying may not be exactly what you heard. Because part of the, the sort, of, sort of heartbreaking history of Christianity is that it is much easier to separate than to come back together again. And uh, and whole um, different church traditions have split from each other completely over things that you know a few hundred years later you think we could actually talk about this in ways that that we where we could understand each other not not always sometimes there are real deep divisions on, over important things between Christians but quite often in hindsight you think did we need to split over whether um, we describe the Holy Spirit as proceeding from the Father and the Son, or could we have, if we'd really paid attention to each other, have worked out um, uh, the reality that both of us were trying to address and found a different uh, set of words. But once you institutionalise those splits, it's so much harder to come back together. And a split does obscure and block the glory of God. It says something untrue about God. Yeah. And an example of that... Is of course you know the, the Reformation debates over faith and works, which seemed um, well they did split the church at the time in the West um, right down the middle, and um, and yet you know in recent times there's been the Lutheran Roman Catholic um, joint declaration on justification, which you know says that both churches, although they don't agree on justification, can find something they can say together while recognizing the differences of emphasis. In them, so it's, it's an example of how you know, in, in retrospect, looking back, you can see that these things can be brought together. But, and I think the interesting thing about that is because, of course, the, the creeds don't necessarily define those kind of things, and there are all kinds of areas where the creeds give you a boundary, give you a, a, a space within which to think, but they don't tie you down too closely. So, for example, the, the doctrine of the atonement, you know, the creeds say very clearly that Christ. You know, it was crucified for our sins. It was for us, for us, and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, and so on. Um, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, um, dead and buried, and everything else. So it, it clearly gives an account that you know that the death of Christ was not a historical accident. It was connected to our salvation. It was for our sins, but it doesn't go into detail about particular do doctrines of the atonement. That isn't to say that there isn't theological debate to be had about which approach to the atonement you have, and that's right and proper that we do that, and we can have our disagreements on it. But it does seem to say that it gives you a boundary. You can't go beyond that to say, well, the death of Christ doesn't really mean anything, um, or that it's just a, just an unfortunate accident. Um, it is for our salvation, but it guards us against falling out with each other or calling each other not, you know, you're not a Christian any longer if you don't agree with my particular view of the atonement, if you like. And um, so it's an example, I think, of how creeds give you an, a, a generosity of space 
uh, encourage you to think. They don't close down thinking, they open up thinking. Um, but they also give you boundaries at the same, same time. What practically, what practical differences would you like somebody who reads this book to put into practice after reading it that they weren't doing before they read it? Yeah, that's a good question, as always, Mike. And um, I, suppose I think it's, it's related a little bit to what you were saying a, bit a moment ago about um, how you approach Christians who disagree with you on one issue or another. And I, I think one of the things we, we're, we're, we're very bad at in the church is we have all kinds of stereotypes about each other. We think we know what that group over there are like and what they believe and why they believe it uh, and so on. And I suppose what I would hope for in, in this is a, is, a, is a sort of deeper listening to each other, um, to views and perspectives that, you know, for whatever part of the church you're in, uh, as you look upon another group in the church that you're maybe a little bit suspicious of, to think, hang on a minute, can I understand a little bit more deeply where they're coming from? Is that something that has a space within orthodoxy or does it not? Um, so that sort of... Just, just holding back the impulse to condemn another Christian um, because they may hold a different view from me. Now, that isn't to say that those differences don't matter. It isn't to say that we've got to relativize everything and say everything's fine. You know, yes, of course, there's theological debate. You know, that, that, that I see the, the creeds don't close down theological debate. They don't make it unimportant. It's important that we do have those wrestles. And sometimes we will, we will disagree on things, and that's fine. That's absolutely right. That's part of the commitment and passion for the truth and the nature of God that Jane was talking about earlier on. But my, my hope would be that it would just make us pause a little bit before jumping to judgment uh, on another Christian um, in that prejudice. And that word prejudice is prejudice. It's judging before the time, um, judging before God judges, if you like. I've got to look at, look at another Christian who might I may disagree with and think, well, okay, I disagree with that person, but I can't come to a final judgment because God is their judge, not me. And I suppose added to that, um, because they and because they go together, I'd 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 love people to fall in love with God again, um, and and just um, I, I, all of us, I think, without noticing, make God smaller, and um, and uh, ascribe opinions to God. Um, that we don't even notice that we're doing. And they might be um, the opinions that I would like God to have, or they might be opinions that make me think God will judge me. Um, but uh, just to take a step back and, and lift our eyes and see again something of the magnificence and beauty of God. Because I think, as I say, those two go together. I think we, we can't be generous towards each other um, unless we get a sense of um, <laughs> what God is actually like, um, uh, uh, that that both humbles and and um, delights us, um, uh, and uh, and as we're to all together on our knees, um, worshiping the glory of God, I think that that grows a, a sense of generosity towards each other because of God's generosity towards us. And in a sense. Christian preaching, Christian living, is about making God bigger for people. I mean, or 
we'll never get it as, as, as big as it should be because we can't because we're finite. But, but making him bigger for those around us. I think if there's one other thing I'd mentioned on that is, is, is I would hope that, that it would take people back to the creeds. Um, because in, I mean, some churches' creeds are said every week and some then hardly said at all. Uh, but they are quite remarkable documents when you think about them. And you think of something like the Nicene Creed. Um, it's what, about 1,700 years old. Um, it's the one creed that is accepted across the entire Christian world. So Eastern Orthodox Christians, Western Protestants and Catholic Christians all basically sign up to the creed. So that, you know, if you think of the Christian church as effectively a third of the population of the entire planet would go under the name Christian, that means a third of the human race notionally sign up to the Nicene Creed. That's quite a remarkable thing when you think about it. And um, so actually going back to that creed and pouring over it, analysing it, now it can feel a little bit strange when you come to it. Um, there's a chapter in the book by Catherine Sonderegger, um, which is very interesting because she asked the question, you know, well, you know, is the creed which is placed in this, these sort of rationalistic, um, you know, Platonizing language about substance and natures and so on, you know, is that all a bit of a kind of betrayal of the gospel? And, and her argument, it's very, very, very interesting argument, is that actually, well, no, no, it's not. It's the right language because we're not just talking about Jesus, we're not just talking about a sort of passing historical figure, we're, we're talking about the deepest structure of reality, and therefore that kind of sort of ontological language that gets us right to the heart of the very nature of being is exactly what the creeds are talking about. So I would love, love people to kind of go back to the creeds themselves and, and pour over them and analyse them and, and um, value them as, as, as things that, that hold us together as Christians across the world. Well, we have come to the end of um, this Godpod. Fascinating discussion as always. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Jane. Pleasure. I think you should tell us again what this glorious book is called, Graham. Well, it is called The Bond of Peace, Exploring Generous Orthodoxy. And it is edited by uh, myself, Graham Tomlin, and Nathan Eddy. It's SPCK. And as I said at the beginning, I have no idea how much it costs. But anyway, <laughs> you can go online at um, reputable websites and um, order a copy and go ahead and do it now if you want and i uh, hope you really enjoy it. it's got some great chapters um by some really sort of top theologians and um I, 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 I didn't write any of them so i can say i think it's really good i only wrote the introduction so there you go anyway goodbye from us and uh, we will be back again with another god pod very soon that was god pod a podcast from st paul's theological center if you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.